The Guardian. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details. I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk, we join Charlie Brooker for a preview of his new Sky One detective spoof, A Touch of Cloth. The scene in the morgue where the dad and the mum come in uh, the was, was the killing, because we were watching the killing, and we were watching a compilation of morgue scenes. There's a harrowing scene in the killing. But for some reason, when you watch it on a compilation of lots of other morgue scenes, it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> we also read the BBC's annual reports, so You Don't Have To, and ask, is it really better to text than talk? Plus, Marissa Mayer says Yahoo to Google and joins Yahoo, and Sky launches Now TV. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'll be joined by Vicky Frost and Neil Henderson in a bit, but first up, Dan Saber, The Guardian's head of media and tech. Dan, the week began for, for both of us, in fact, with the BBC's annual report. What did we learn? We, what a tame affair it was. We learned surprisingly little. Chris Patton told us that he thought Mark Thompson was a brilliant director general and Mark Thompson said he thought the BBC was brilliant and they sort of praised each other and then tried to end the press conference rather as quickly as possible. Why did this happen? Well, there's a new DG around the corner, so nobody wants to talk too much about the vision thing because Mark's on his way out and George Entwistle doesn't want to do that yet. And in another, because I think they're probably resigned to the reality that this is the annual pay report in which all, all journalists want to do is sort of gut the report for whatever information they can find out about stars pay. And so we learned that the BBC has cut its sort of star pay bill from uh, uh, for the you know the the million plus bracket from I think fourteen point you know, nearly fifty million fourteen point seven million to about nine point seven million, which is sort of heroic in its way. And we even estimated that I think last year there were between I don't know seven and nine million plus earners, and now we think it's between three and six. Not very precise, I know, but that's the numbers the BBC gives us. So I guess we learned something, and then from then from there we just speculated furiously and and, and tried to work out what we could. There was one other interesting surprise too. Uh, we always thought the BBC's highest paid stars, or we, we knew in a way, that those earning the most from the licence fee were Gary Lineker and Graham Norton, somewhere around a couple of million quid a year, although Norton's pay has gone down a bit recently because he signed a new deal. But what emerged later on in the day through sort of finding an obscure note to the BBC Worldwide, the commercial arms accounts, is how much Jeremy Clarkson earns. So we think he now earns three and a half million. We earned, he earned three and a half million last year. Now, almost all his income, all but half a million, we think comes from uh, comes from commercial activities, Top Gear DVDs and roadshows and international licensing and all that. So in one sense, look, good luck to him. But in another, he really is now, you know, by far and away the BBC's highest earner. When you have that, carry that accolade, as Jonathan Ross did, that, that does sort of carry with it a certain amount of, if you like, pressure and is to some extent definitional for the BBC. And well, we all know what Jeremy Clarkson can do on the controversy front. Yeah, as Jonathan Ross found out, when you when you sort of take on that mantle, you become a bit of a, a lightning rod for for criticism of the corporation. But I guess um, you know Clarkson's been in that role for for some time now. But this sort of gives added weight to his critics when uh, when inevitably you know the next Top Gear controversy kind of raises raises its head. Yeah, I think that's right, and and I think and the trouble with Is he Clark- worth it, do you think? Well, look, Top Gear's were clearly worth it because because he's making about he makes about thirty percent takes about thirty percent dividend. Uh, from the profit, from the profits of a company called Better Six, which is the sort of Top Gear PLC, if you like. So that's two point seven million pounds. Now BBC Worldwide 
takes half of it. So they're making four and a half million. So it's not like it's a bad deal for the license fee payer. And of course, uh, you know, some of the profits are retained in the business too. Uh, Andy Wilman, um, uh, Jeremy's producer, is the uh, Top Gear executive producer, takes the other 20%, by the way. So look, it sounds like it's, you know, the profits suggest it's worth it. And Clarkson was smart enough to negotiate a profit share. But, you know, it's, it's, it feels like a slightly risky place for the Beeb to be in because. You know, a lot of these things, these Clarkson controversies, they hang on the exact form of words used and, you know, the degree of, I don't know, menace for want of a better word or, or, or otherwise. So, you know, one only has to sort of say the wrong thing that's interpreted in the wrong way. What did Jonathan Ross say? I'm worth 50,000, 10,000 journalists. I can't quite remember the quantum. But anyway, we, we remember the point. Uh, yeah, the lesson there, never can pay your salary to uh, the, 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 that earned by BBC News staff. Um, but there, there was another winner, apart from Jeremy Clarkson. In this week's uh, annual report, this was BBC Worldwide report, which comes out at the same time as John Smith, the chief exec, who um, on an annual pay packet of £898,000, could have been 50k more, but he decided it wasn't appropriate to accept a pay rise in current circumstances. Is it a bit weird that the, the chief exec of the commercial arm earns, what, twice as much? as the new DG will earn. Is that a strange situation or is that a reflection of well, the market? Given what we're talking about, the stars, the, you know, the rate the ratio between Clarkson on three and a half million and, say, Lineker on a couple of million, then in one sense, no. The BBC commercial arm is slightly different. Clearly, it's a profit-making enterprise. However, it relies heavily on BBC intellectual property generated from the licence fee. John Smith himself has been not at all visible latterly. There's a lot of speculation his relationship with Chris Pratt and Patton is frosty and people wondering, you know, how long, how sustainable that is. And I think, you know, you've got to just sort of consistently ask the question, how well sort of worldwide do in its own right or, or how well would it do if it didn't have the sort of BBC, public service BBC sitting behind propping it up? So I think John Smith's high pay does make him look exposed relative to to Mark Thompson, which is in a little over 600,000, and of course, more importantly, to uh, George Entwistle, incoming DG at 450,000. And Entwistle's pay should be the sort of high watermark for executive pay, really. And just finally on the annual report, part of it is the BBC Trust's verdict on the, on the, the management's performance over the last year. And as you mentioned at the top, it was, uh, well, it felt like a bit of a whitewash, really. There was a bit of criticism was, was thin on the ground, and it may well have been a stellar year. But um, what does it say about the sort of regulatory role of the BBC Trust and there was lots of talk when the Tories were in, in opposition uh, about you know the trust being dismantled and various things being torn up. But uh, will there be pressure on for the trust to show more teeth uh, with the new DG, or has that sort of debate gone away now? Do you think? Hmm, I don't think it'll show less teeth. I think three or four years ago there was a lot of criticism about whether trust could be a regulation cheerleader. That principally came from the right. I think that was sort of allied in, in, in a wider sense that the BBC needed to be reined in, that there was some broader need for BBC reform, so on and so forth. Now the Conservatives are in power. They don't, you know, that's not a sort of a narrative they want to, ministers particularly want to sort of return to. It's the wrong time because the charter negotiation is a few years away. Taking on the BBC when you're in government really isn't the sort of smartest thing to do. It was all right in opposition when you're trying to curry favour with, you know, News International or other right-wing newspapers, but right now, hardly necessary. Chris Patton has obviously come in as chairman, again, you know, former Tory cabinet minister, so very much calming the nerves from that front and Patton does sort of look like you know he's an experienced politician he's a big name uh, he feels like a sort of a big a big leader so I think he he's really able to sort of calm the debate about the chairmanship but I don't think he's sort of quelled it completely because I think Patton's you know no doubt he will point to, you know find some points of disagreement with the DG 
but you know he's not very critical of the corporation in, in, in public and so he's sounding more and more like a cheerleader every day. Lord Patton and Mark Thompson both mentioned Sky uh, at the um, unveiling of the results this week and uh, the impact Sky had in, in driving up talent prices. But Sky had some announcements of their own this week. Uh, one in particular was the launch of Now TV, uh, which is not a uh, not a celebrity gossip magazine spin-off, but it's a on-demand internet TV service, which will offer movies direct to your iPad and many other places too for £15 a month or £3.49 a go. Dan, you've, you've described this as Sky's biggest strategic move since uh, since they got into broadband. What's really interesting here, from a Sky point of view, is the sort of recogn- is the tacit recognition that when it comes to sort of selling people, you know, fifty pound a month or whatever it is, satellite subscriptions, we've pretty much reached the end of the road. There's still a tiny bit of growth, but ten point two million Sky customers. About sort of 13 million, I think, overall, once you factor in Virgin. You know, we've pretty much le- re- reached the limit. The growth is sort of very low six figures now uh, in, in Sky subscribers on pay television. So that leaves half the country, 13 million homes, 12, 12 13 million homes, who, who don't want to take pay TV in its traditional form. Some of these people just won't take pay television and are sort of diehard freeview folks. But maybe some of these people will take a sort of lower priced offer or something a bit different. The other thing that's happening, of course, is technology is changing. All uh, 11% of homes have iPads that numbers really sort of shot up. It's a sort of, you know, it's a new screen. It's a new convenience screen. And people, as the, the popularity of the iPlayer is showing that people are absolutely watching television on that, you know, medium-sized screen, for want of a better term, because otherwise it's the 47-inch screen in the corner, isn't it, increasingly? So people really want to watch TV on the iPad. And this is what this service is, again, aimed at that person, the person who might, you know, want to watch television in bed and not, not, not sit in the lounge. So you've got changes in sort of, Changes in technology, and I think a recognition of where the marketplace is. So that's why this is important. And lastly, uh, uh, one other factor is the arrival of competition, which always focuses the minds over at Austerly, uh, and in this case, the arrival of Netflix. Now, I think Netflix is sort of uh, again a sort of uh, a streaming um, movie service. You know, you pick. You know, you pick your movies. It costs five pounds a month, much cheaper than the Sky proposition. And away you go, and you can watch them on TV. You can the movies come down the phone line. You can watch them on TV on the iPad. On I suppose if you're determined on your iPhone too. Netflix launch has done quite well. Sky wants to sort of cut them off a bit, and that's where Now TV comes in. It's tricky market to get into. I mean, you've already mentioned the uh, the, the people like Netflix already in in the, in that zone, but also you got the free to air players, of course, like iPlayer and 4OD, which which many people will be the sort of default setting when they when they look to watch things on their iPad. The first thing to say is this is not a proven market at all. Now TV is offering sort of pay-per-view movies at £3.49 and maybe people don't want to sort of go into the sort of post-blockbuster era, but they want to have Premier League games on Now TV in due course. But, you know, pay-per-view sporting events, football have been tried before and everyone's been totally underwhelmed. So I don't know if that's really going to, you know, going to deliver. So, yeah, look, Sky's in a kind of sort of a discount product space. Uh, that's why it's called Now TV and not Sky. Uh, you know, it's Now TV powered by Sky or some such. But it's not given the Sky brand directly. But whether there's a meaningful market here, you know, very much remains to be seen. What Sky does have in its favour, though, of course, is content. And crucially, uh, it's got, and this is where it differentiates itself from, from, the, from the far cheaper Netflix, is it's got good deals with all six of the major Hollywood studios to get movies onto, movies for streaming, movies to watch much quicker uh, than, than Netflix will, you know, only a few short months after they've been on in the cinema. It's got the Premier League football, as discussed. So it's got the content that people want. So if anyone can make this work, it's Sky. 
I'm not sure that they are going to make it work because I think people either want free or they're prepared to pay £50 a month for everything um, and even maybe chuck in their broadband and phone line too. But, you know, we'll see. Well, away from television and The Guardian's parent company, Guardian News and Media, announced its annual results this week. Dan, what, what were the numbers and what did they tell us? So the Guardian Observer lost about £44 million before some exceptionals. We'll get the absolutely sort of full set of results next month. But but their losses that were expected, Guardian Observer's been sort of losing money for a while. Why is that? Because you're having to invest in digital transformation, in new platforms, you know, getting content onto the iPad or Facebook apps or wherever it might be. That's expensive work. At the same time, you're still sort of running the traditional sort of print product too. And obviously newspaper costs money and all that sort of stuff. It also, the reality is that, um, wonderful though The Guardian might be, it's smaller than The Telegraph and The Times in terms of both readership, that's paid, that's paid for print sales, and in terms of turnover. So The Guardian's a £200 million business and Telegraph's £330 million, and I think The Times titles are sort of nearly £400 million. So they are bigger commercial animals, and if you're running at a similar cost base to your competition, and you're the sort of smallest of the, of the big three, if you like, in terms of revenue, then clearly that's going to be a, put you put a bit of pressure on the bottom line. That said, Guardian's not here to make money. It's not a PLC in any traditional sense. It's not quoted on the stock exchange. It's owned by the Scott Trust. It's unique in, in on Fleet Street. There's no proprietor here. There's no single dry individual owning the paper. There is just a sort of a charitable organisation, organisational with a, with a purpose, which is to safeguard the perpetuity, the independence of the Guardian in perpetuity. It's about you know long-term investment in journalism. Uh, that's the aspiration. But I think what's also clear, as Editor-in-Chief Alan Rusbridge said, is that Guardian's got to become a smaller organisation, save £7 million, pounds uh, in the current financial year and reduce those losses. Um, there are profits elsewhere, uh, other commercial businesses like Auto Trader. there's cash in the bank, 225 million at the last count. So there's plenty in the balance sheet to uh, safeguard the newspaper in the long term, but clearly a, a, a high level of losses for the moment. And the immediate consequence of this will be between 70 and 100 voluntary redundancies out of a total editorial staff of about 650. And it's been said down that these losses you've talked about, they're, they're sort of a, a high watermark at the beginning of a, a, a five-year transformation plan, or at least that's the intention. Well, everybody's got to do the same thing. You know, the, the market is changing, the consumer habits are changing. So, uh, you know, every paper on Fleet Street is losing sales at somewhere between, I don't know, sort of four, five, six percent a year and maybe 10, 11 percent a year. So we're in the middle of this enormous transformation. We all know that readership is going to be, you know, going to be digital or largely digital soonish. Rupert Murdoch, I think, talked about Levinson inquiry about printed newspapers sort of disappearing sometime in maybe the next 20 years. It'll depend title by title and hit the upmarket titles first. But this is a great adventure and it's a great transformation and nobody said it was going to be easy and I don't think it's going to be easy for anybody. What is clear is it needs to be done and to a degree, you know, you'll need to be in it for the long term and I think in it with a sort of a brave heart. So five years sounds like um, uh, probably the very least of it. I I suspect we'll be transforming and and, and evolving with technology for, for generations to come. Okay, Dan Saber, thanks very much. Part two, with Vicky Frost, The Guardian's TV editor and media commentator and Suntime Media Talk guest, Neil, it's been too long. Neil Henderson, welcome both. Now, I was going to call Neil to invite him along, but I sent him a text instead. Now, uh, see where I'm going here. Uh, I'm not alone, because it turns out, according to media regulator Ofcom, that we now spend more time texting each other than we do phoning. Yes, the volume of mobile phone calls went down for the first time ever 
last year. Uh, we prefer text-based services such as uh, instant messaging and Twitter and social media and, uh, frankly, can't be asked to speak to each other anymore. Neil, wh- what does this say about us as a, as a nation? Well, I've, I've worked for mobile phone companies and mo- mobile phone providers in the, in the past in my PR life, and this was the thing they most feared because they've got these people on three-year contracts where they have bundles of text, so they don't make any money. But we've become a, a nation of ignorance and also people who are so impatient that they just send a text, you know, will you marry me? Text. I'm leaving you. Text. Rather than ringing someone up and saying, will you marry me? Or I'm leaving you. It's all on text. And I think we have become a nation of people who just don't talk to each other anymore. I mean, I was surprised to see you two today. I thought this would all be in text. (laughs) (laughs) Vicky, I don't mind the occasional text, but as soon as a text becomes a conversation and the other person replies and then you have to reply, and frankly, I'd just rather pick the phone up. Oh, I don't know, actually. I do have some quite long text conversations. I mean, personally, I blame Boris. This is my thing. When do I most want to make a call? When I'm standing around at a station... Uh, having missed the train, I've got half an hour, I could give someone a ring. Apart from I can't, because Boris is booming around stations, <laughs> telling everyone to leave London for the Olympics <laughs> in his tough voice, doing my head in, ruining my phone calls. So last night I made a phone call, totally ruined by Boris, and I had to resort to texting. So if we only got rid of announcements, then frankly it would all be fine. And Neil, you, know, you made a serious point there about the, the, the sort of financial impact of this on mobile phone operators. I think mobile phone calls fell 1% uh, last year, and the volume of landline calls fell 10%. And, and the reason we're doing this is because smartphones have made it so much easier uh, to send texts or go on social networks, and, and everyone's connected now on the move, and, and they're going to lose, you know, lose income as a result. The thing is, you, you've also got to worry about email, because the BlackBerry messaging is actually allowing people to... Uh, circumvent email and talk through that that form. So email is also struggling a bit. So you're gonna, you know, people will just not talk to each other at all, and it might have an impact uh, impact on literacy as well. I do think there's a sort of a sensible point that actually I think you're so bombarded by information about your friends. You know, you see what they're doing on Facebook, on Twitter. You know, you do quick emails to each other to ask questions or make arrangements. Actually, you feel like you're very engaged with your friends and you maybe don't need to call them for a catch-up, when in fact that's just not really true. You're kind of, it's sort of friendship at a slightly different level. And I do find myself having to remind myself to phone people. So uh, any friends listening, it's not the time avoiding you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's harder to ignore people when they send you a text, frankly, because you can just not answer the phone. But the text comes through and, you know, people assume you've got it. Well, some of my friends don't actually follow that rule. I mean, there's some where I just haven't had a reply and then they make an excuse about the network not working, which in the case of O2, it wasn't. Uh, and I mentioned there about the decline in, in landlines. Do you think we're going to get to a stage? I mean, a lot of people, I think, just have landlines purely because they want broadband or because their satellite, uh, you know, their TV, often their pay TV uh, company, you know, demands them of it. But uh, for most people, I mean, our, our landline's in a box and never works, despite telling my father over and over again we don't use it. He still complains we don't answer the phone. Well, you don't have a seat in the hall anymore to make your calls, do you? The, the, the thing is that BT have recognised that, and that's why they've spent £800 million on football, because it brings people into the BT family. You might get broadband. You might want to have a landline, but it's used as a luxury. I do think the landline thing is just such a rip-off. Shouldn't that landline price be factored into your broadband? And then you should just pay for what you actually use and want, rather than having to pay for a landline that you're not even bothered about. Well, no word on uh, whether Marissa Mayer uh, has a landline, but uh, she does apparently spend 14 hours a a weekend's marathon, 14-hour email sessions at weekends. Uh, And this is Marissa Mayer, who is the new chief executive of uh, Yahoo. Neil, the, the challenge 
She faces uh, was underlined last week by uh, by Yahoo's results, which said that earnings were down four percent, and revenue was down one percent, down to one point two two billion dollars. What's what's her challenge? Do you think? I think her challenge is staying in the job for longer than three months. They've gone through five chief execs in the last year. Uh, the last one was accused of all sorts of issues with his CV. She's come from Manchester United, and she's effectively moved to Wigan. Yahoo is on the way out in in Europe. It's still very popular in America, but they just haven't kept up with innovation. And it's too little too late for Yahoo. She might have gone for a big pay package. She might have been bored and overlooked at Google. But Yahoo, like AOL, is just not in in a market-leading position anymore. And Vicky, she's also six months pregnant, which which was painted as as controversy in in some areas. Some people were saying... uh, well, some people said it's a triumph for working mothers. Others, uh, you know, said, uh, well, you know, that maybe this will cause issues for, for her further down the line. Did, did, what did you think of it? I think it's fantastic that a very talented woman has got a job she deserves to get. I think it's fantastic that the fact that she's pregnant is not an issue, as it shouldn't be. If you're recruiting long term, well, even if you're recruiting full stop, but particularly if you're recruiting long term, it doesn't matter at all whether she's pregnant now. It makes no difference. Uh, more problematic, the fact that she's sort of saying, well, you know, I'm pregnant, but I'm not going to take any maternity leave. And obviously that is her personal choice. But I think when you're a woman in a very senior, very visible position, obviously that does have an effect, I think, perhaps. And, and also maternity leave isn't a big thing in the States. I mean, women do go off for three weeks and then come back. And she does have money for, you know, for a nanny, for a nurse. I mean, I know nurseries are expensive in, 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 in Silicon Valley, but she will be able to afford that. Well, they're they're expensive in Hertfordshire, I can tell you. Yeah, um, but I mean, Neil, as a, as a journalist term PR man, what, what what would your advice be? Where where should she focus first? You know, is it on the brand? Is it on the search? Is it on other parts of the business? Uh, well, the brand is kind of dead. People just don't use Yahoo anymore. Uh, they don't even advertise on TV anymore. I mean, remember, ten years ago, it was practically every ad was a Yahoo ad. Search has kind of been wrapped up by Google and, and Microsoft with Bing uh, and Facebook to a certain extent have, have taken away that aspect. It is a difficult position. Unless you've got a new innovation, then she's really going to struggle. Well, we shall find out in the coming months how Marissa solves a problem like Yahoo. From the big screen to the small screen now, and Charlie Brooker's new Sky One comedy drama, A Touch of Cloth. We heard from him at the top of this show. Let's hear a little bit more from the writer, presenter, Guardian columnist, and much else besides at a BAFTA preview screening earlier this week. It came about years ago. We were, sort of myself and, and, and several other writers, came up with a, a pilot script for what was at the time much more of an Inspector Morse parody. And we, it kept nearly getting made. It was nearly made by... The BBC it was nearly made by ITV and it was nearly made by Channel 4. And Stuart Murphy remembered it. Stuart Murphy at Sky remembered it. And we figured that in the time that had passed, the trend had changed and, and now prime series tended to be about broken, fucked up men who were scarcely more together than the, the serial killers they were chasing. And the serial killers they were chasing tended to be sort of artisan killers who were kind of making artistic statements, almost like they were the controller of Radio 3. <laughs> so we kind of decided to go more that route. So, Vicky, uh, it's called A Touch of Cloth. Uh, I like the title. Um, who, who's in it? And, and did you like it? So it stars John Hanna and Saran Jones as uh, kind of the detectives, basically. And I think that is its one of its really good points. That I think they're just perfect casting... 
it's great that they've got people who they play detectives on telly to do it. it. It adds that sort of extra layer to it. I love a detective drama. I really love a crime drama. So for me, all the I loved all the jokes and, you know, all the cliches and all the things you see all the time. And there are loads and loads of great jokes in there, lots of things that made me laugh out loud. Although, I must say, I did see it with a very supportive crowd at BAFTA who were very much enjoying it. I think for me, it's just, it's quite long. You know, it's 90 minutes. I, I think actually it's too long. It, just in terms of gags, basically, you know, that's such a massive amount of time to fill. So it's very much in the vein of uh, kind of spoofs like um, uh, Top Secret and Police Squad and Airplane, that sort of thing. And, yeah, exactly. And, and all those kind of films, they've got a, the hit rate or, or the gag rate is, is, is astonishingly fast, isn't it? Yeah, and, and you know, Police Squad was so well written and, and was in, in, in an era before, you know, we had a, a police drama or a reality drama like Road Wars or Traffic Cops on, on, on TV all the time. But did they say, there's been a murder? They didn't say there's been a murder, I'm afraid. I know. Maybe they should have got you in to do it perfectly for them. I just, if it had been sort of 45 minutes, an hour, I think I would just have reveled in it. But I was aware that, I, you know, it was long. It felt long to me. And it, it felt like it could have done with a bit of judicious editing, much as I loved an awful lot about it. And John Hanna in particular is, is great in it. And they've kind of, they really have nailed, you know, all those great things about, you know, those ridiculous kind of romanticised, so damaged detectives. You know, they have got all of that really well, but just some of the jokes feel a bit overdone to me. Well, from a cop spoof to a show that only very occasionally feels like it might be a spoof, and that is BBC Two's Line of Duty, which is uh, uh, the fourth out of five episodes uh, aired this week. Now, I can't decide, Neil, is this, is this TV gold? Or, or is it a bit rubbish? Every now and again, a line comes out that uh, sort of clangs like um, Lenny James' line about, you know, if you want to, sh- if you want to, if you shoot at the king, make sure you kill him, and if you're going up the ladder, make sure you don't tread on a snake. And I just think, oh, please. <laughs> but uh, so I'm the jury's out for me. But um, how about you? I love it because the the bad cop remains the bad cop. And aren't police officers looking younger these days? Well, the guy in p- professional kidding. standards looks like he's just come out of college. Um, so that that's not quite. As believable. I don't think Neil Morrissey's believable as a cop or even as a, a straight actor hobbling around on his stick because, yes. for example, he wouldn't be on duty if he was hobbling around on a stick. Because... Can't quite see the point of Neil. I'm <laughs> guessing there's going to be some enormous reveal in the last episode. But that's the point, that he wouldn't normally be on duty, but Lenny James's character, Gates, has saved him, basically, from being stuck behind a desk because Gates has such a clear up break, has such an influence, he gets away with it. I mean... I think, basically, John, it is both great and absolutely ridiculous at times. You know, it feels like there's a kernel of really good stuff in there that is just entirely undermined by a plot that we're... Effect- I mean, spoilers, OK? Don't listen to the next bit if you haven't seen the last episode. But- I, I haven't seen I haven't it, but seen I, I, feel, <laughs> I feel duty-bound to listen to OK, well, if we're effectively down to, uh, you know, a police corruption plot that is centering around school fees... How did that happen in the script? Um, I, it, it, it <laughs> Not just, much of a spoiler, so carry on. You know, it just feels like there are too many things that are ridiculous. You know, the Scottish crime lord. Who is he? He sounds like he's out of Russ Abbott. You know, just <laughs> on the end of the phone. Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it, boy? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's sort of what it's like, you know. But equally, Lenny James is fantastic. Gina McKee, before she was... Uh, she was fantastic. 
Um, and Adrian Dunbar, I'm a big fan. Yeah, exactly. And and actually, I know um, I I know Arne does look like he's about 12 years old, but that's because we're all getting on. I mean, he, you know, I think speak he, for myself. He is in his <laughs> mid 20s, I suppose. He's meant to be young and idealistic, though. That's the whole sort of thing in it, I guess. So so for me, it's both brilliant and rubbish at the same time. I have a hunch it maybe is a fantastic three part drama there, but. Um, unfortunately, it's five parts. I think you might be right, actually. There's been a bit of going backwards, forwards, around the houses, and I feel like I've seen, you know, we've seen scenes twice that we only ever really needed to see once. Well, there's a theme emerging here. Can you spot it? Uh, the next programme and last programme we're going to talk about this week is Wallander, uh, which I can safely, uh, which, well, I won't tell you if I've seen it or not because, uh, you know, don't want to put you off giving me any spoilers, Vicky. But, uh, but <laughs> uh, how's, how's Ken? <laughs> Well, of course, it's always, gosh, the the great which Wallander is best debate. Um, I like Ken Branagh as Wallander. I, I sort of think physically he's not quite right. He's he's not fat enough. He's not sort of untidy. Well, no, Wallander's meant to be a bit fatter than Ken. And, you know, he's not sort of craggy and untidy enough, really. But I really like the kind of contemplative stillness he brings to the role. And the thing for me about the English Wallanders is they are the most beautifully shot dramas. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think actually on BBC, you know, it's kind of in all the sort of discussion about whether he's the best interpretation. For me, the thing that is beautiful is the cinematography is fantastic on it. Sweden looks incredible. I mean, Sweden is incredible, but Sweden looks incredible on it. And that sort of beautiful pace to them and the light... I mean, I didn't much like last week's Dogs of Riga, I've got to be honest, because that's kind of, to me, I think that's always sort of Henning Mankell's kind of Le Carre Wallander, really. And it's a slight push, even sort of on paper, but sort of that sort of post-Cold War thing translated to now, it didn't really work for me, to be honest. But as a series, just such a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, I, I think Sir Kenneth, Sir Kenneth Branagh um, is, is fantastic in, in the role Although, you know that effect that you're talking about? They actually put a pair of tights over the lens. That's how they get that effect. But I think it's a 90-minute advert for Ikea. There's too many cop dramas on TV. It's nicely shot, but it's not as good as the Swedish version. Um, I'm not sure I entirely agree, actually. I think some of the storytelling is much better in the English version, even if... Branner isn't your favourite Wallander. I mean, I kind of think it's not a competition between Wallanders. I like different things in all three of the versions, really. And I'm sort of quite happy watching different versions of them. And it's interesting how well it's exported. I mean, you know, so the English Wallander has exported back to Sweden, you know. I think if it's your, you know, he's he's an interesting enough character for you to watch and re-watch, actually. And do you think, Neil, do you think that like a Doctor Who special that the Wallanders will come together and sort of turn out to be cousins like what happened in Midsummer Murders and they can all, <laughs> they can all solve a crime together? They don't do that kind of Midsummer Murders stuff in, in, in Sweden. They're not all uh, related to each other. But um, I think that there will, get, there will be a run of that. The problem is <laughs> that the BBC really can't afford to make too many of them because they're very expensive. Well, although I think they make quite a lot, you know, they must they sell very well worldwide, eh? So, well, um, well, it was kind of happened anyway this week, you know, in terms of Jan Meyer from The Killing turned up to be Wallander's sort of sidekick for the episode. Ah, well, so Wallander is one of my show off, well, planner classics, I think they're called, the things that you record and then they're still there sort of three years later. So, oh, yeah, yeah. I shall investigate, a bit mm. like Wallander does. Uh, well, my thanks to this week's guests, Mr. Dan Sabber, Vicky Frost, and Neil Henderson. 
Please leave us your comments on what you've just heard on our blog or our Facebook wall. Alternatively, tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk was produced by Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Guardian Podcasts are partnered with audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash audible, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.